Our text for today, as we begin three weeks under the theme of Jesus reigns, that Jesus is Lord, He is in control. Jesus is not simply something, a little thing that we add to our lives. Jesus as our Lord is the very center of our lives. Our text for this day is from the book of Revelation, the first chapter. And specifically, we'll be looking at verses 1, 2, and 3. There is the great question of our origin. That is, where did we come from as human beings? And there is the great question of destiny. That is, where are we going? Where are you going as a human being? And there is the great question of certainty. That is, however you might answer these questions, how do you know what you know? How do you know that those answers are the right ones? It is now 95 A.D., and every single one of the disciples, those earliest followers of Jesus, every single one of them are gone. Every single one of them have died. In fact, they've been killed. They have been martyred for their proclamation that Jesus was their Savior and Jesus was Lord. Turns out the Roman emperor didn't like that. All the disciples are gone. They have all died except for one, and his name is John, often referred to as the beloved disciple. And by 95 AD, John is an old man, and he is now living on an island called Patmos, a little island in the Mediterranean Sea. Sounds like a lovely place to retire on an island with the beach and the Mediterranean Sea. But of course, for John, this was not a retirement community. The island of Patmos was a brutal Roman prison camp where he, because of his profession, Jesus reigns, Jesus is Lord, had been exiled to live out his days. And it has been now over 60 years since John last saw Jesus Christ. And again, all of his friends are gone. All of his family is gone. He has lost everything. His freedom is gone. It has been over 60 years since he's seen Jesus. And you would think that maybe at some point over those 60 years, you might begin to wonder, is it really true? Did this really happen? Was it all just a dream? It was so long ago. 
And yet, despite all of the pressure and all of the persecution and all of the loss, yet John writes in his letters at this time, and even writes here in the book of Revelation, all about his deeper joy that he has and this peace that he has. Where did that come from? Well, for John, saying Jesus is Lord, that Jesus reigns, It meant for him, and indeed it should mean for us, that Jesus was the very center, the very core of his existence, of his life. And that in Jesus, the greatest, the most important, the ultimate questions of life had real, life-changing answers. The biggest questions of life, questions such as, our origin. Where did I come from as a human being? Questions of destiny. Where am I going? What is my future? And questions of certainty. If those are the answers to those questions, how can I know for sure that those answers are the right ones. These are some of the biggest questions, the ultimate questions of life, and all philosophical systems and all religions need to have an answer to these questions. Indeed, all individual human beings should struggle with these questions. The reality is most of us spend very little time at all wrestling with these ultimate questions because we are too busy watching funny cat videos on YouTube. I watch funny animal videos on YouTube. But we need to wrestle with these great questions of life. And indeed, it is in these verses, verses 1, 2, and 3, just the three opening verses of Revelation that John is showing us the answers to these ultimate questions. So let's dig in today and let's focus on that first question. A question of our origin. Where did we come from as human beings? And what is the answer in the Western, modern, secular world? What is the secular world's answer, the worldview, the German Weltanschung? What is the worldview of the age in which we live, at least in the West? Where did we come from? It is this. That in the final analysis, we as human beings, ultimately we came from nothing. That one time there was truly nothing. And I don't just mean darkness because darkness is still something. I don't just mean the emptiness of space because the emptiness of space is still something. I don't just mean a void because a void is still something. I mean absolutely nothing. It's hard to imagine nothing because anytime you start trying, have you ever tried to imagine nothing? This is what me and Pastor Micah do on an average weekend. Anytime you try to actually conceive or think of nothing, you immediately start to see at least something, darkness or something. And that, is, that something is not nothing. And so when we say nothing, there was really nothing. This is the prevailing view of the day, that there was nothing. But then, somehow, giant question mark, somehow out of nothing came this little minute point of singularity, 
a particle. It's called the, the, the Higgs boson particle. And all of time and space and all of energy and mass and matter, all of that was compressed into this tiny point of singularity about the size of an atom. And as the pressure built up, there was a huge explosion. It was a big bang. And somehow out of the nothing came everything. Now look, I don't necessarily have a problem with Big Bang cosmology. The Bible says in the very first page, in the beginning God said, let there be light, and there was light. But if we say that there was nothing, and then out of nothing came everything, what are we really saying? We are saying that everything that exists is here by chance. That everything that is here is ultimately an accident that the universe is an accident. The solar system is an accident. The planet Earth, despite the fact that it is perfectly tilted, the perfect distance from the sun and all the conditions to support life, the planet Earth is an accident. It means human life is an accident. It means your life is an accident. That you are a grown-up germ, a biochemical machine and all of your emotions and all of your feelings and love. Love is, there's no such thing as love. Love is simply chemical reactions going off in the brain. And when I tuck my daughter into bed and I kiss her forehead and all of that love that I have for her, it's not real. I'm just chemicals here by accident. And if we say to people, and if we a whole generation after generation of our people believe truly that they came from nothing, is it any wonder that so many people in our world today feel like they're nothing? But the biblical worldview, of course, is radically different, a completely different starting place. We see that here in Revelation chapter 2. John at least is alluding to our origins here when he says in verse 2 that John bore witness to the, quote, word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. John bore witness to the word of God. God. Now, the Word of God does not mean simply the written scriptures or the scrolls, the Word of God. Word of God has a much more deeper significance. The Greek word that we translate here as word is the Greek word logos. And logos, we get words like logic, Logos, we translate as word, I cannot emphasize this enough, was a huge philosophical concept or principle within Greek thought, Hellenistic thinking, Greek philosophy. The Logos, for the Greeks, was the organizing principle of the universe. The Logos was that which binds all things together. The Logos, you can think of it, if it's helpful, sort of like the force in Star Wars. Some of you now are going, oh, I get it now. <laughs> the Logos was the source for all of life. The Logos was ultimate reality, what was behind all 
things. And here John radically is saying that he was a witness, an eyewitness, who saw this logos. And if you are familiar with the Gospel of John, the very first chapter in the opening verses, he speaks of this logos, this word, of God, he says, in the beginning was the Word, in the very beginning was this Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. Personal language. And without Him was not made anything that was made. Here John is showing us and showing to the Greeks, he's saying this philosophical principle of the Logos is actually a person. That ultimate reality, that from which all things have flowed forth, wasn't just nothingness or some magical particle that appeared out of nothingness, but it is a person. Ultimate reality is a person. It is love. And that is our origin. That is where we came from. And that you were made in the image of this personal logos, this personal God. You were made in the image of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that means that as human beings... You have dignity, you have value, you have worth. It means that you matter, that you were designed, you were created, you are loved, you are delighted in. And that is a very different starting place from you came from nothing and you are an accident. Now, 17th century French mathematician, scientist named Blaise Pascal, he invented the barometer, passionate follower of Jesus. Blaise Pascal said this, that it is humanity's wretchedness which actually proves our greatness. Our wretchedness proves our greatness, and by that he means the fact that we so often are sad or disappointed, the fact that we have all these longings in our heart and that so often in our lives we are not content with the things we have. That wretchedness, he says, that actually proves your greatness. That proves that you were meant for so much more. And he says this, he said, it is our wretchedness which proves our greatness because who is more unhappy at no longer being a king than a deposed king? Who is more unhappy at no longer being a king than a deposed king? In other words, if you've never been a king or queen, if you've never been royalty, you don't miss being royalty, you don't miss being a king or queen because you never were. But if you have been a king, if you have been a queen, if you have been royalty and nobility and it is taken away from you and you lose it, there is a longing, there is an anguish, there is an ache deep within you and you want that back again. And Pascal is saying that all of us as human beings made in a special designed way Way in the image of God. We once were kings and queens, royalty with this holy, awesome God, but we lost it, and everything deep inside of us knows it, and that is why there is that emptiness, that God-shaped hole in our hearts. 
origin. Where did we, where did you come from? It's one of the ultimate questions that has a real answer in our Lord Jesus. Now, secondly, not just our origin, but our destiny. And I can't help say the word destiny and think about Forrest Trump. What's my destiny, mama? Life is like, never mind, forget that. Destiny. Some of you have furrowed brows. It was a movie in the 90s. Okay, okay, I just... (laughs) Tom Hanks, Oscar, do you not know? Okay. Where are we going? Where are you going? And again, from the modern, secular worldview, where we are going is to nothing. We come from nothing, and we are returning to the nothing. There is only death that lies before us. We return into the earth. And as modern people, that's very difficult to deal with. No one really lives consistently like they're simply a biochemical machine. No one really lives consistently uh, or uplifted thinking that death is always before them and our relationships end at death and love does not go on forever. And so we try to dress it up and use nice language in the culture today. We say death is a part of life. And we say things like death, it's natural. Or even this, death is a friend. And even the way we deal with death and even funerals, we try to sanitize it and make it as clean and pretty and as beautiful as we possibly can. Or we just try to distract ourselves and distract ourselves so that we don't have to deal with that reality. But again, the biblical worldview is so much different. Of course, this is the book of Revelation which deals a lot about our destiny. And it begins, verse 1, this way. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. The word must. And then it says this in verse 3, that blessed are those who hear these words of this prophecy for the time is near. And that word time is very important. There's two different words for time in the Greek language. In the Greek language, one of the words for time is the word chronos or chronos. It's where we get words like chronological or a chronology. It is linear time, A and then B and then C and then D, as time moves on in this line, chronological time. But there's another word for time in the Greek language, and that is the word kairos. And kairos isn't linear movement of time. Kairos is a specific moment in time where something dramatic happens. And the word that John is using here for time, when he says the time is near, it is the Greek word kairos. That there is something that is going to occur. 
that all of time and space, the reason why human history exists, is that God has put in a plan. There is a Greek word, telos. There is an end. There is a purpose. There is a goal. There is a meaning. There is an objective. There is some place where we are going together. It isn't just back to nothingness. There is a kairos, a moment in time that is coming. And look, I don't want to give it away. Spoiler alert. You know, plug your ears if you don't want to hear how the story ends. But God beautifully has revealed to us how our story ends. And as C.S. Lewis would say at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, it really isn't the ending of our story. It's just the beginning of our story. That our whole life in this world is just like the title of the book and all the chapters that lay before us, each one better than the one that came before Revelation 21. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is that kairos moment. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. What does John see? He sees a new heaven and a new earth, and it says, the sea was no more. And that's disappointing. I quite like a sea. I almost said that with a British accent. I, I quite like a sea. <laughs> Micah is saying, what are you doing right now? <laughs> I love water. I love the sea. I love the ocean. We, that's one of the things we loved about Florida. One of the things we miss kind of about Colorado. It's a little bit more arid here. What is this saying when it says the sea was no more? Well, what does sea or an ocean or an expanse of water actually do? It separates one location from another location. It separates, it divides one realm from another realm. The Atlantic Ocean, that expanse of water, separates Europe from the Americas. It separates the United Kingdom from the United States. It divides. And when John says he sees a new heaven and a new earth, but now the sea is no more, he is saying there is now no longer any separation between heaven and earth. And as he would go on to say, the dwelling place of God is now with his people. And God wipes every tear from our eyes. His omnipotent, all-powerful, the hand that holds the universe, and yet at the same time so tender and intimate to wipe away your tears. And it is not simply a soul floating in clouds or getting your wings and learning how to play the harp forevermore in all eternity. It is resurrection. It is the body you have now, risen and perfected. It is this earth that is perfected and glorious, and we are with one another, and we are with Jesus forevermore. What a very different view of our destiny than what the world can give. So that's our origin. That's where we're from that's our destiny it's where we're going then finally finally certainty how can we know that these things are true again what is the answer of the secular 
Western world in which we live, where do we find truth? More and more, the, what the culture around us says is that we find truth by looking where? By looking within. Throughout the history of philosophy, it was one philosopher who said, I have the truth, and then the next philosopher says, no, they're wrong, I have the truth, and then the next philosopher comes along and says, no, they're wrong, I have the truth, and the next philosopher comes along and says, no, I have the truth, and then there's World War I and World War II, and finally they just gave up and said, ah, the heck with trying to find truth, just find it for yourself, and that's where we find things today where people will say, well, she's just living her truth. And you have your truth, and I have my truth, and everyone has their own truth. I'm not concerned with your truth. I'm concerned with the truth. I like true truth. We have to actually say that now. Are you talking about truth? No, I'm not talking about truth. I'm talking about true truth. Oh, true truth. That what adheres to actual reality, not just our internal emotions or feelings. But again, the biblical view is radically different, that there is truth, not just our personal truth. And look, this is the book of Revelation, the Greek word apocalypsis, used 18 times throughout the New Testament. Apocalyptics, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave. There is truth, and God has revealed his truth to us. He has given us truth. How kind, how loving that God would speak to us. There is a God, and he has not been silent. He has spoken, and he has revealed these things to us, his revelation to us. And then, not only this revelation from God, but there were eyewitnesses, real historical witnesses of these things. John, again, alludes to that in verse 2 where he says, John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he, what? Saw. He saw. Over 60 years ago at the time of writing the book of Revelation, he was there. He saw the word of life. He saw Jesus Christ. He was an eyewitness. And one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible is a letter that John wrote called 1 John. In the opening verses, he says this. And listen for all of the different verbs of sense perception that we see here. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, there's that logos again. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. John is saying we were there, we saw, we heard, we touched we saw, we looked upon, we heard, we touched. This is true, you can believe it. And John and every single one of the disciples, in fact, all of those earliest generations of Christians, they gave their life because whatever you think happened to them, they were convinced that these things were true, that Jesus was the Son of God who had died and who had risen and who was ascended and was Lord over all Jesus reigns. 
as we wrap up here, let me just say, I know that you say, well, look, there's a lot of holy books out there. How can we pick this one particular holy book when there's other holy books like the Quran or the Book of Mormon, for example? Let me just think about that real quick for you. The book of the Quran, for example, how was the Quran manufactured? How was it produced? Because that makes a difference about what might be more reliable. How was the Quran produced? It was one man named Muhammad who went off into the wilderness and went perhaps into a cave and sat and he wrote it all down and he wrote and he wrote and he came back to this group of people and he said, here's the word of God, believe it. The Book of Mormon, and we love our Mormon neighbors and friends, but the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith, one man who's in the woods and he says he finds some gold plates and some special glasses that can translate the words on the gold plates, except the gold plates and the glasses were lost. And he goes and he writes it all down and he writes it all down and he goes back and he goes, here it is, it's a whole new testament, it's the word of God, one man. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How were they produced? An entire community of people, in fact, thousands of people who were eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus and they had that story collectively as a whole community of people and then as they began to die out they started writing it down for us for future generations now if you just lay that out there and say which one is more likely to be reliable the one produced by one man who claims this is it or the one that came out of thousands of eyewitnesses of these things which took place in space and time and human history. And as my daughter Amelia even pointed out to me yesterday when we were having this very theological conversation, she goes, and even look at the archaeology, Dad, like the walls of Nehemiah. Yes, pastor's kids. <laughs> that these things are true. You're not crazy to believe. One last thing. Look, 95 A.D., 60 years over 60 years have passed since John saw Jesus and all the disciples are gone. Why? Because they believed this was true and they gave their lives. John is in exile. How can he believe? How can he keep going? How can you believe? How can you keep going? It's because we know where we've come from. We know where we are going and we know these things are true. To God alone be all the glory. Amen.